Hello, and welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory. On the Rocks! With Katie. And Allie. Usually we'd be hanging out, just the two of us, with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing books about famous women in history. <laughs> we have a very special guest here with us today, Francesca Peacock. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's so exciting to be here. We're so happy to have you. Francesca is an author and arts journalist from London. She writes about books, art, and culture for The Telegraph, The Times, The Spectre, and Prospect, amongst other publications. But she's here with us today to talk about her very first book, Pure Wit, The Revolutionary Life of Margaret Cavendish. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Perfect. Um, yes, of course. So I am a journalist, as you said, and uh, my like day job then, if that's the right word to use, because it's kind of a dream job in so many ways, is writing about art and books for newspapers and magazines, mostly over here in the UK, um, occasionally for places in the US, uh, but less regularly. And my first book came out in September, uh, which was September of 2023. And it's been kind of a whirlwind ever since. And then it came out in January uh, over in the US, um, which which has been so incredibly exciting. There's something utterly wild about being sent photos of your book in a window in Manhattan. I, I yeah. nearly cried. It was insane. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. We're, we're so excited to get into Margaret and get into this book. But first, we have to talk about the cocktail we made for you. Um, so this is called Pure Wit, and it is gin, passion fruit, simple syrup, Aperol, and you top the whole thing off with tonic and garnish with an orange slice. So cheers. cheers. <laughs> That sounds absolutely amazing. I absolutely oh, love Aperol. Really good. <laughs> Very good. Good job. Yeah. Katie. Good That's job. a fun ingredients for this fun and dynamic woman we're about to talk about. Absolutely. <laughs> so before we dive into the book, let's set the scene for our listeners. What time period are we in in your book and what was life like for women at this time? Perfect. Um, so really she's born in the early 1620s she dies in the 1670s and if we're thinking about key things that happened that period that really help us to situate ourselves in that time period one is the English Civil War uh, which is a huge civil war which happens really turns families against families friends against friends and it's between the parliamentarians and the royalists it even ends up with uh, King Charles I having his head cut up cut, cut off maybe cut up as well, um, and uh, England being a republic uh, for quite a period of time. Uh, the other really big thing that happens in this period in English history is uh, the Great Fire of London. If people have heard of that in 1666, most of uh, London burns down. So Margaret really lives through this period. She lives through the Restoration as well, which is when the monarchy gets restored, Charles II comes back, and kind of London is ablaze with excitement, the, the, the kind of... De- decadence of a new monarchy uh lots of mistresses the theater comes back to life um so she's really in a very exciting time of english history it's kind of the period that we can trace a lot of our political developments back to you as well as our literary developments as well mm, perfect and obviously we're focusing on the life of margaret cavendish and right from the introduction of the book you can tell that she's quite a character can you give us a brief description of her and describe her place in english society yeah, definitely. Um, so the book opens, in fact, with Margaret uh, making quite an interesting journey. So she's travelling through London to the theatre uh, to, to see a play. And it's a play her husband has written, but people think she wrote it herself. And she is travelling in, as letters would have us believe, a carriage pulled by eight white bulls. Um, this, this carriage is meant to be 
incognito, but it clearly wasn't. Uh, but if there was any pretense of her being under the radar or anything, it quickly vanishes because she sits in the most prominent box of the theatre, wearing a dress which is cut to below the level of her nipples, um, which is quite hard to kind of visualise or anything. And then she had dyed her nipples bright red and attached scarlet tassels to them so nipple tassels were a thing in the 17th century uh so she signed sounds like a woman of provocative stunts of kind of dramatic dramatic appearances but she's also england's uh very first perhaps female professional author one of england's very very first and earliest female authors at all and a woman who writes about science philosophy very early works of feminist theory as well as the very very first work of science fiction um so she really has a huge place in england's uh, and any anglophone literary canon and is really important to be studied I think that's awesome she sounds like I want to hang out with her <laughs> so have you always known about Margaret or when did you find her and decide you wanted to write this book about her yeah, so it's such a good question. Um, so I read English as my degree, and I was actually very, very interested in a group of women who came a bit after her. Um, so there are women writing in the early 18th century. Uh, we kind of think of, you know, all things to do with the 18th century then. And they were often, there's kind of an explosion of women's writing and women's writing being published and women being really having the freedom finally to express themselves through poetry, be it prose, um, all of these mediums. And they were often writing about their gardens. And I think I was probably talking about this uh, far too excitedly for far too long and somebody turned to me and said you really need to read some Margaret Cavendish if you're this obsessed with early modern women's writing and I'm forever grateful that they did because I did and I first read The Blazing World which is her very 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 early work of science fiction the very first work of science fiction we have uh, vastly predates kind of you know Mary Shelley's Frankenstein all of these other titles we might be thinking of I read that became utterly obsessed and she ends it with an epilogue to the reader and she says I'm slightly paraphrasing now but I'll try my best to quote as well but she says by this you may perceive that I want to be empress and authoress of a whole new world and I just thought what kind of woman can write this how bold do you have to be in the 17th century where women don't have access to education women's lives are very much curtailed uh, women really aren't publishing works if they do publish they often publish anonymously and then if they don't publish anonymously it's very much often on very safe subjects like uh, religious works or books of advice to mothers so this is so shocking to make that kind of statement about what you want to be and it's so bold and I just became absolutely obsessed and um, so I kept reading more and then I kept reading more and I carried on and I carried on and then I realized that 2023 so the year that just passed was actually her 400th anniversary and as I could tell when I was trying to work Towards it, nobody else was writing a book for her 400th anniversary. And I thought, what better time? Um, so it was, it was an incredibly exciting journey. Yeah, that's incredible, especially because like I started looking at her Wikipedia page and looking through your book. And I was like, how have I never heard of this person? Mm -hmm. Like, she seems so interesting because I've also I realized I didn't know anything that she had written. So can you tell us a little bit about some of her more famous works and how they were received at the time? Yeah, completely. I often think it's so interesting that so many incredibly well-read people haven't heard of her. Mm -hmm. And it's because um, she's recently become kind of a very hot topic in academia, has been added to loads of undergrad and academic courses. But that's kind of only in more recent years. 
is and even then it's still only within academia I think she's really deserving of a far wider readership um so the most famous work and the one which is published in a penguin classics edition is the blazing world it's a great title for a book and this comes out in 1666 uh, by which point Margaret has published so many books so during her whole lifetime she publishes 23 volumes she only lives to 50 she only starts writing in her 30s so it's an absolutely insane number and the blazing world is her most famous it is the very first work of science fiction it's a book about a woman who is an empress in a whole new world which is attached to the earth via the north pole and this empress is a kind of benevolent dictator she gets to control all of these men it's often called a utopian feminist utopia it also includes moments of lesbian and sapphic sex and love it's absolutely brilliant but she also wrote a lot of other plays so she writes plays about women's role in society plays about separatist communities of women who leave all men behind and run away uh, she writes plays about childbirth plays about the war she also writes a lot of philosophy so her philosophy is finally being recognized as it really should be but she's in kind of um conversation and debate with the very very famous philosophers of her time including Thomas Hobbes very famous 17th century theorist and René Descartes as well as a French atomist called Pierre Gassendi so her philosophy is really scholarly and very very interesting and it's kind of natural philosophy so thinking about how the world works kind of quite early science um so she's kind of a polymath I like to say because she writes poems as well about all of her theories as well as quite personal poetry about her family she writes plays she writes very early novels she writes philosophy as well she also writes this kind of genre of fictionalized letters so she writes nearly everything um absolutely amazing there's also a collection published by the new york review of books uh their publishing arm of her some of her poetry edited by michael robbins which is absolutely amazing as well so she is an author a philosopher you know a playwright a thinker what was she like at parties? You mentioned a little bit about her clothes earlier, but she seems to be like a really big theatrical person. Yeah, so this is such an interesting question because so much of what we hear about her in sources is so dramatic. So in 1667, the same year that she goes to the theatre, she's invited to the Royal Society, which was a home of scientific endeavour. It was very much where a lot of uh, scientific experiments were happening. It was established with the Restoration in 1660. It's kind of an intellectual scientific boys club in England at the time. She was the very, very first woman to ever be invited. And she turns up to this meeting of scientific minds in a dress so long that she has to have six ladies in waiting to carry it behind her she then accessorized it with a man's coat and a man's hat and she cross-dressed to the extent that john evelyn one of the diarists who was there at the time writes she could have been a cavalier but that she had no beard so this kind of performance is so much a part of her character but at the same time uh, from her very earliest childhood She's always writing about how shy and how melancholic and how bashful she was. So she claims she couldn't speak properly in public. Uh, in often people describe meeting her and saying that she looked wonderful. She was known for being quite beautiful, uh, but she would often speak quite weirdly. She memorised parts of her books to repeat to people rather than engage with them. So I think I really divided character and something which I kind of struggled with when I was initially writing and thinking about the book is how how do we think about this woman do we think of her as an incredibly confident kind of showstopper or do we think of her as the shy woman she describes herself as mm -hmm. and how was her relationship with her husband was he a person that she really felt comfortable with who supported her work or was there any sort of conflict between them yeah, so such a good question. So William Newcastle is her husband, William Cavendish. He is the grandson of Bess of Hardwick, um, who might 
be a name that some listeners have heard of. She is one of England's very early kind of uh, aristocratic, very famous women for her designing architecture. So she commissioned two of England's very most beautiful country houses, which are uh, Hardwick Hall and Chatsworth House, both of which are absolutely gorgeous. And William was her, her grandson. So she marries into this kind of aristocratic, her own family weren't aristocratic. She marries into this very, very wealthy family, becomes a duchess eventually. Um, but when she meets him, William is three decades older than her mm-hmm. and had been married before. So had a first wife who had died, had two sons and three daughters. So in a way, he kind of marries her thinking, oh, is this somebody who's younger, who I can have more children with, who could bring me more heirs? Crucially, that doesn't happen. Uh, but instead, he starts a very, very supportive intellectual relationship. So their love letters and their love poems are still able to be seen in the British Library, which is absolutely amazing. Such a great resource. Um, and he kind of sets up this kind of academic, he sets up this kind of academy to educate his wife. Um, so he orders in books. He knows all of these people. He used to be before the war, an intellectual patron to all of these figures in early modern literature, like Ben Johnson, Richard Flecknoe, Thomas Hobbes. And he teaches his wife so many things. So it's through him that she learns about rhetoric, about history, about arts, about classics, about religion, about literature, um, because her own education as a woman growing up wouldn't have been that, that extensive. Um, and we even have a receipt of his his brother, so her brother-in-law, um, ordering her a scale model of the solar system so that she could learn about that. So in many ways, it's quite a gorgeous partnership, I think quite supportive. He writes the prefatory material for lots of her works, and in her later life, even paid for her books to be published. Oh, wow. That's so nice. <laughs> I like him. <laughs> so you mentioned that, like the Beatles, at one point, she had 100 boys and girls running up to just see her. Yeah. What made her so popular? I think it's... I think it's kind of this thing that we can't really appreciate how weird it must have been. So in the summer of 1667, there are so many letters and diary entries kind of recording her as London's biggest celebrity at the time. She's described as kind of like the Queen of Sheba, the biblical figure. She is pursued throughout London by mobs and mobs of children, all clamouring to catch a sight of her. Now, could it have been for her philosophy? She was at that point expounding vitalist materialism. Probably not. The truth is, it was probably not for her vitalist materialism. It probably was because she was famed for her fashion. She um, wore outfits which were very, very much not the kind of vogue at the time. She designed them all herself and had them made and had done since she was she was a child. She was absolutely obsessed with clothes. And I think she probably presented something of a kind of spectacle. She was a woman who had published, who people thought were writing plays which were performed, even though she actually wasn't. Those were her husband's plays. Her own plays were not performed in her lifetime. Um, So she was this kind of spectacle of a woman who was very much involved in public life at a time when it was quite normal for women to retire. So I think there's a degree to which it was so unusual for a woman to appear so publicly. Probably the truth is she was a spectacle. She made her servants wear clothes of her own designing as well. I mean, she kind of sounds like a Lady Gaga type of figure, just like (laughs) making really bold choices. (laughs) Now, Throughout your research and writing this book, what was your favorite thing about Margaret and what was your least favorite thing? Okay, I think that's such a great way to like try to break it down. I think because yeah. you get very close to a subject of your biography yeah. when you're researching them, I think it becomes quite easy to kind of get wrapped up in all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can't lie, I did go a bit nuts whilst I was writing this book and I have like lists on my phones of 
phone of things I thought Margaret would really enjoy or things I thought she would hate. So I think I got a bit too close to her as a character. I think what I found incredibly interesting is thinking about her feminism and her contribution to a feminist canon of thought. And um, sometimes people argue that we should only think of these very early women writers as proto-feminists because they come before feminism was codified or they become come before a kind of definition of feminism. And I try to disagree with this in the book. I think often if we cut these people out of the history of feminist thought, then we're kind of kind of cutting everyone out who doesn't directly agree with what our kind of contemporary definition of that is and I found it so interesting to think about how she thought about how women live under different constraints to men about how their life is so different uh, because of their biology at one point she describes being a woman as a kind of slavery um, which is obviously a very difficult time term to use in this period and probably needs a bit of investigation but at the same time she thinks that women having to give birth and get married is so different to men's experience of the world so that was definitely I think my favorite thing to think about her and I think something I struggled a bit more with is maybe resolving her contradictions this is a woman who is so radical in so many ways who writes so eloquently about how women are being oppressed but at the same time is a royalist in the civil war so very much on the slightly well, not even slightly, on a less radical side. You know, the parliamentarians are associated with, well, not necessarily the parliamentarians, but the other side in the civil war is associated with so many more radical political ideas about, you know, about suffrage, about women's roles in society, about everyone's roles in society. So she, whilst being so radical, also has deeply hierarchical ideas. She believes that a a king should be in charge. She believes that society is one of order. Um, And I found that quite quite difficult to resolve at points. But Mm. I think it boils down to the fact that she is very contradictory I mean she's so shy but is also doing all of these stunts and everything and she believes in a great chain of being but also believes in rights for animals which you would think would be kind of at odds with that kind of belief in hierarchy um so I think that's something I found more difficult but I wouldn't say it is something I didn't like about her because I think I found it incredibly interesting and so interesting to pick apart and delve into mm-hmm. yeah So when people sit down to read this book, especially modern day feminists, what do you want them to take away from it and and learn from Margaret? Yeah, so I think what I find quite interesting to take away is to kind of see how she was thinking about all of these questions so early. I mean, she is very much thinking about how marriage might be worse for a woman than it is for a man, about how it's unfair that women have to give birth. Um, and she's thinking all of these things through quite viscerally. She has horrible scenes in her plays where women have to give birth and that's like the worst thing that's ever happened to them. So I think it's quite interesting to think about how these things often come a century before we have, for example, Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Women. But I also think what I might like to take away is how she is connected to a much larger chain of feminist thought that comes even before her than we might think. So one of my favourite things I discovered when I was researching this book is there is a 14th century French female writer called Christine de Pizan, who writes The Book of the City of Ladies, which is kind of like a 14th century version of Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. It is a book all about how women should have a space to retreat to without men and how they can set up this ideal city where women live with their rights because there are no men in it. They're able to pursue their intellectual ideas. It's absolutely brilliant. And it was a beautifully illustrated 14th century manuscript. You might be thinking, why am I talking about this now? This is a book about the 17th century. But when I was kind of getting very involved in this and super interested I read this article which made 
the claim that perhaps Margaret had owned this most beautiful manuscript, which now is in the British Library. And I went to go check it and you can open it up in the British Library and it's marked as belonging to the Newcastle, Newcastle family. And it had been bought when they were over in Europe. So she owned this book of very, very early feminist literature, very early feminist thought. And she would have seen the illustration. She would have read it. There's even a chance that she doodled in the, in the margins. And I just really love the idea that she's connected to this huge canon of feminist thought and, and was reading herself and was involved in all of these ideas. That's so cool to hear. I love the, you know, the line of feminist thinking throughout history that, you know, some people don't realize is there. <laughs> yeah, it is. If you exactly. look hard it, <laughs> it completely is. And, you know, it kind of crossed languages at that time and it stems so much further back than, you know, we might think at all. Yeah. yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about the research process? It sounds like this was a real labor of love. <laughs> What kinds of things were you looking into? Did you find letters or journal entries or was it a lot of reading? I mean, there's not a lot of other stuff written about her. So (laughs) what was that like? Yeah, so I initially actually read, there is a great book by a historian called Katie Whitaker called Mad Madge. And I slightly disagree with the title, but it is an absolutely wonderful work of historical research. And she went through so, so many archives up in Nottingham. um, And she does absolutely amazing research into things like Margaret Cavendish's medical records, her financial records, so she is able to really delve out how her relationship with her husband plays out financially, what things does he give her and all of that. And then from that I went to go look in the archives in Nottingham myself and found so many heartbreaking details in her letters and stuff, uh, the the letters from her doctor about her. So I discovered that um, she was unable to have children. And there's a letter in Nottingham, which I read, which kind of diagnoses her with sterility. And it's really heartbreaking. It's a letter from her doctor to her husband describing her and saying that it he thinks she is sterile but he also thinks they should not even be trying to have children at that time because Margaret is so depressed he says it is hard to get children with good courage so you kind of find all of these absolutely heartbreaking lines and heartbreaking documents but such wonderful ways to try and piece together a story so there's absolutely amazing stuff in her family papers in Nottingham up in England so in England's the Midlands um and they're all in the university special collections there there are like land deeds about all of the land drawings um of her on horseback and just so so many brilliant papers and then in the British Library in London in Vikings Cross I had the most fun because her letters her love letters she wrote to her husband during their courtship are there and you can read them all I mean her handwriting is awful but they are absolutely brilliant you know you can read in the margin she says he writes her love poems in response to her letters and in response to one she says my lord please let your ear limit your poetry which is just hilarious because his love poems are so bad um and then you can get out the volume of his love poems as well and they are horrific so he is um three decades older than her and at one point he tries to minimize the age gap by saying um old and dry wood makes the best fire um (laughs) which is quite bad he also rhymes he rhymes cunny with funny at one point which is just awful um so that was really amazing and then I did more research into lots of other women in the period I really wanted to situate her in her own context so I was able to find so many brilliant documents about women in the civil wars I even went a bit later into the 17th century I managed to read Queen Anne's letters which are also in the British Library um and there is something utterly wild about sitting there and having access to an actual letter that a 
that a queen has written and has held in her hand and then posted. I mean, it, it's 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 quite a quite a bizarre moment. Um, often historians describe crying in archives because they kind of get overawed by it, and we sound ridiculous, but it is also very true. <laughs> it's really weird. Um, so yeah, I got to see so much amazing material. Um, really, really very lucky and had so much fun piecing it all together, as well as being very moved by lots of it. Um, there's a cher- chapter in the book about early modern infertility. Um, and I, I did cry in archives whilst reading the material because there's something about reading a letter which a woman is writing to her aunt. This is Mary Evelyn, the wife of the diarist John Evelyn. And she's describing how uh, two of her children have died in very quick succession, I think. And she is writing to her aunt saying that she looks upon her living child as a blossom, as casual and transitory as the rest of them were. And it's just like utterly heartbreaking and thinking about, we often think because so many children died in this period, your child mortality was so high, you kind of think it's a fallacy, but you often think that maybe these deaths were less mourned because they were so commonplace, but it's not true at all. Um, so I think having access to other people's lives is, is such a privilege. And um, I felt so privileged to find all of that through through people's material, which has been preserved. Mm. That's so amazing. So this book, as you said earlier, was released on January 2nd in the United States. Can you tell us where people can buy the book, where they can find you online and where they can follow you on your socials? Yeah, of course. So the book is able to be ordered, I believe, uh, came out with Pegasus Books and it is on Amazon and on the Barnes and Noble website, I believe, which I really can't get my head around. That's crazy. <laughs> um, and you can find me. My website is francescapeacock.co.uk and on socials. I am uh, at Chaska underscore Peacock. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for writing this book and coming on our show to talk about it. We had such a blast. And uh, I mean, we obviously have to put her on the list to do for our show now. Yes. So <laughs> we haven't done her yet. So. <laughs> so thank you for giving us a great source so we can tell her story properly. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for making her a cocktail. She would love that. <laughs> You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.